And now I'm really happy to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Jody Hassett Sanchez. Jody Hassett Sanchez is the president of Pointy Shoe Productions, a documentary film company that focuses on serious topics related to culture and faith. Her most recent film is Sold, Fighting the New Global Slavery. Previously, she worked in network television, most recently at ABC News, where she covered religion, culture, and education for World News Tonight with Peter Jennings and filed stories for Nightline. Please give a warm welcome to Jody Hassett Sanchez. Thank you. It was almost 300 years ago that Jonathan Edwards warned Americans that they were only hanging on a slender thread. That was the only thing keeping them from burning in hell forever and ever in his famous speech about sinners in the angry hands of an angry God. It was, I think, 40 years ago that Joni Mitchell warned us that paradise was about to be paved over. And it was about a decade ago that Time Magazine, in a cover story, declared that Americans were no longer interested in the afterlife whatsoever. So the fact that you are all here tonight to hear us talk about this, and then we will all have a grand conversation, I think, disproves that. So with no further ado, I'd like to start off, and I think maybe our first question should be one, and I'd like to introduce our, um, our panel here with, as I ask them a question. Um, I thought we might start off by talking a little bit about the geography of heaven and hell. Um, where they're located and whether this matters or not. So let me start uh, <laughs> to my left with um, Professor Buswell, who's the Distinguished Professor of Buddhist Studies at UCLA and the founding director of the University's Center for Buddhist Studies and, and the Center for Korean Studies. In 2008, he was elected president of the Association for Asian Studies and in 2009 awarded the prestigious Manhae Grand Prize in Korea for recognition of his pioneering contributions to establishing Korean Buddhist studies in the West. So, Robert, I wonder, the Buddha has spoken often of the heavens. Did he tell us where they were? Is that relevant at all? Well, uh, there, there actually are many heavens in the Buddhist system. We, we don't talk about heaven, we talk about heavens. In fact, there are as many as 27 different heavens in the way the Buddhist cosmology is set up. Uh, these, however, are in many ways not really relevant to the tradition because the goal in Buddhism, as you, as you may know, is not rebirth in heaven or, or, or a birth in heaven, but it actually is, is the experience of nirvana. The heavens are seen as simply a, a level of rebirth like that of human beings or animals or even the hells also are levels of rebirth. They're subject to impermanence the way all the levels of existence are. In other words, the gods who are in heaven will eventually die. And there are some very poignant stories of, um, of uh, some of these, these divinities who are suddenly changing, not quite sure what's happening, then realizing, aha, this is my death going on now. So the goal of Buddhism is not rebirth into heavens. Uh, this in, in many ways is kind of a consolation prize instead for Buddhism. The real goal is, uh, is the experience <laughs> of nirvana. And nirvana is a very different um, kettle of fish than the heavens would be. Nirvana really means the experience um, of, uh, of blowing out or almost blowing away all of the sense of what we are as human beings or as, as discrete individual human beings. Uh, the goal of nirvana is, uh, is to experience a state, the Buddha says, which cannot otherwise be measured. He calls it the immeasurable state, a state which is like that uh, of asking, where does a flame go when the flame is blown out? Nirvana is, is, is not a place, it's not a state, it's, a, it's an experience. And um, the experience, um, uh, I won't 
go into much detail here, but the experience, for example, entails that you go through three gates to, to get that experience. The first of these is the gate of emptiness. You realize nirvana has nothing to do with you as an individual. You go through the, the gate of signlessness, where nirvana is an, is an experience which cannot be characterized in any way uh, by, by, a, by a mark. And also, finally, nirvana is a state that requires you to go through the gate of what is called wishlessness, meaning that you can't actually desire nirvana. If you have a desire for nirvana, you still have an attachment to, to some concepts of what nirvana is and will not be able to experience it. So only when you realize the state where there's neither you that experiences nirvana, there's no nirvana that is experienced, nor is there any desire to experience nirvana, only then will you experience nirvana. <laughs> so, as I said, very different the conception of what we're after in Buddhism. Um, thank you. <laughs> I had a follow-up, but... Um... <laughs> Trying to segue from that, yeah. <laughs> um, let me jump to Martin over here, who is the curator of this wonderful show um, that we are all here talking about tonight, really. And, and he's also someone who worked at the, at the uh, Getty from 2009 to 2010 as a, gr a graduate intern in the, uh, the Getty's manuscript department. So what a, what a grand return you're making here with this program. And he's currently a PhD candidate in art history at the University of Chicago. I wonder, Martin, if you could talk to us a little bit. Those of you who've seen the show have seen that there are some very specific panels in there that, that give us a sense of direction. I mean, they talk about the descent. It's very clearly down. Um, and... And there's a chance to look at some specific maps that really get into the topography of hell. So I'm wondering if you could talk about why that was so interesting to people in medieval times and what you've learned from that as well as maybe the depictions of, of where heaven might be. Yeah, so, so it's not, also, not only going down, it's also, there's also possibility of going up. And <laughs> I think this, this kind of, this opposition is very much reflected in, in compositional principles that govern many of of those images in the show and in medieval imagery or Christian imagery in general, that below is always the sphere of the earthly, the, the flesh, the corrupt sin and so forth, and, and the uh, sphere above is uh, transcendental, the divine, the numismatic, um, um, pneumatic. Um, so I think one, um, let's just bring up maybe one image, um, that's actually in the show. It's uh, it's this, um, the Spinola Hours, and it's um, showing the parable of um, the beggar and the rich man. Um, it's pretty simple, pretty pretty straightforward. The kind of a parable for retribution, uh, retribution, and the punishment of the wicked and the, the poor and feeble and weak will go into heaven. On the left. Um, we see the beggar kind of coming to the rich man, asking for leftovers from his sumptuous feast. Um, instead, uh, the rich man kind of uh, sicks his dog onto the, onto the beggar. The beggar dies, he goes into heaven, uh, rich man goes into hell. What's fascinating about this is like how much, how much attention and, and detail is allotted to the depiction of, uh, of hell. Um, like my favorite guy is this here. He's actually he's shooting an arquebus, um, which is at this time kind of very uh, recent development in weapon technology, right. and it came. Um, so there's lots of fascinating and, and interesting torments going on, and then and then 
I want to get to that in a minute. Why are the ones of hell so much more fascinating than yeah, the and ones then, of and heaven? Then, Everyone's behaving so well. And then the beggar is going, like it's, uh, it's from Luke 16, it's going into the bosom of Abraham, which is mm-hmm. somehow synonymous. It's a kind of difficult thing, but it's somehow synonymous to the Christian, uh, to Christian heaven. Um, and this is kind of in space, like it's spaceless, like it's not really set in a space. Heaven, uh, hell is is in a is in a valley. It's uh, clearly defined. Whereas um, here, heaven just seems to open up, or the sky seems to open up, and uh, and um, uh, the beggar is received in there. And it's something I think we we'll probably come back to that. It's typical for for Christian medieval thinking about, about heaven, where heaven is, because heaven is not in a specific place. Hmm. Okay. Well, let me go to you now, Professor, and introduce um, Professor and Writer, Anthropologist and Writer Peter Nabokov, who's the Professor of World Arts and Cultures at UCLA. He's conducted ethnographic and ethno-historical research with Native American communities throughout North America. He's the author of eight books, most recently, uh, a Forest of Time, American Indian Ways of History. And I know, um, Peter, from what you've told me, you've studied the cosmology of the Pueblos in New Mexico and many other tribes here in California. And I'm wondering what you can tell us about, is it important where they place heaven, how they envision heaven? What can you tell us about that? I'm doing now a book about an American Indian guy who uh, went to school at uh, religious school, first Protestant, and then he went to a Catholic school. He kind of got whiplashed between both of them. And in both of them, the teaching device was not the, the, the circles of hell, uh, but was the latter, which is a Byzantine. It actually predates. It's from the 7th century. Um, the idea that there is a, a ladder and you climb towards heaven. and There are little Bengay devils all along the way that are trying to stab you and make you huh. be bad. And... Uh, and then you're, if you can uh, kind of escape the, the temptations of, of, of the flesh and the other ones, then you'll, you'll get to heaven. And they worked very, very hard at indoctrinating American Indian kids. As I say, both the Catholics who introduced it and the Franciscans, particularly in the mid-19th century in, in uh, western Montana. But the, 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 my man, the guy I'm writing about, it didn't take because he had a very different idea, no idea of sin in Pueblo Indian society for, from where he's from, no notion of, uh, you know, you, you're going to pay if, you, if you've been bad or good type of thing. Um, indeed, uh, they have a very literal idea. They know where heaven is. It's west of Acoma Pueblo. It's uh, near Zuni Pueblo. It's a lake. They know exactly what it looks like. I recently discovered, and I brought it, a picture I can tell you how many trees are in the orchard. Uh, we're going to have a picture of heaven here. Yeah, <laughs> i got to have a picture of heaven. I'm not supposed to show it to you. I'd have to shoot you with an arrow. Okay. Uh, but it's got, um, it's got two peach trees. It's got a pile of dead rabbits because a feast is going to happen. Huh. And the people who are harvesting the corn are spirits of the dead who are very happy to be at this heaven. Indeed, everybody gets into This is a Pueblo heaven. Everybody gets in. Um, there are no hell. The arrows that are extending down are lightning bolts. That's a good thing. The lightning bolts are going to leave arrowheads in the ground. That's a good thing because it gives you free weaponry when you want to defend yourself against Navajos and also to kill deer. So it's a pretty nifty place. We know where it is. And people will return from there in the form of clouds. And they'll return to dance with you. So when you do go, there's a lot of dancing and merriment. And when they return, which they do for half of the year, 
it's a marvelous reunion with your ancestors. Um, so, I mean, it probably compared to a Christian uh, notion, it's kind of boring. It sounds pretty fun. <laughs> Thank you. I've always wondered if maybe the pop philosopher Belinda Carlisle had it right when she'd saying, ooh, heaven is a place on earth. And I know there's a lot of contemporary evangelical thinking about this idea that, that heaven isn't a separate place uh, where God lives and earth is where we live, but that actually um, the two may come together, which is why we're seeing more movements for social justice issues and things among evangelicals. Professor, I'd like to introduce you and ask you to talk a little bit about that and maybe back us up a little bit to kind of as someone who's taught theology for so long, the historical take on, on the geography of heaven. But first, let me tell everyone who you are, please. And you are Professor Jeffrey Burton Russell, who's Professor of History Emeritus at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He taught the history of Christianity for two decades. He's also taught at UC Berkeley, Harvard, the University of New Mexico, UC Riverside, and the University of Notre Dame. He's the author of 19 books, including A History of Heaven, Paradise Mislaid, and most recently, Exposing Myths About Christianity. So what can you tell us about in the Judeo-Christian history where heaven might be? Well, and there are a lot of answers to that, of course. Let me, let me start with the, with the core theological answer. Heaven is where God is, wherever that is. God is, God is there. When uh, people, quote, go to heaven, we don't usually say that anymore, they're with God. That means being in heaven is being with God. Now, where is that? Is that somewhere in the, in the physical cosmos? Uh, the general answer is no. It's somewhere... It's not anywhere in terms of space and time. It's beyond space and time. Uh, God is eternal, and the people who are with him, the humans who go with him, uh, uh, are, are, are eternal with him. Uh, how, do you, how do you get there, so as to speak? Um, you get there by following, uh, following a life of love and gratitude and generosity and loyalty in this world. And uh, your character, therefore, is opened up to God. And when you die, your character is what you've made of it during your life. And uh, your character then takes you, takes you to God. Uh, if you're pointed away in the other direction, if you're, if you're full of uh, anger and hatred and spite and so forth and so on, uh, your character is not pointed toward God. And uh, so you will be excluded from that communion with God, which is really what... Um, what the basic idea of hell is. Hell is, hell is not being with God. Hell is not being in love. Hell is being uh, angry and, and bitter and so forth. Now, that's the fundamental idea. But then we, of course, have, have the um, historical development, which brings us into the, into the um, exhibit that we have before us here at, at, at the Getty. Now, uh, in... Hebrew thought and, and in Christian thought and in Muslim thought, uh, there is an up and down. That is to say, the idea was, and I think the, and for up until the 1600s or 1700s, the idea was, was quite literal, that you went up to heaven, whether by a ladder or whether through spheres or whatever, you went up. God was way up there. And uh, Dante, I think, put it best, where you went up through circle, after circle, after circle, toward heaven. You finally got to the outermost skin of the cosmos, 
and then you broke through, when you broke through that, that outermost layer, you were no longer in the physical cosmos, uh, you, were in, um, you were in heaven, you were in, in, in God's world. And uh, Dante, of course, famously said, look, uh, he was very, very uh, specific about what he was saying about hell, and as he gets higher in heaven, he gets less and less specific, and then finally he says, you know, language can't take me any farther, I, 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 can't, I can't tell you what I saw. Hmm. And so I think, you know, we see that in art, too, we see that because, it, you know, hell, you can do, it's very physical, and you can pin it down, but in art and in poetry, and in literature, heaven is so inexpressible. I mean, how, how do we really know what God is like? It's so beyond our knowledge and our experience uh, that we have to use metaphor and use it very, very carefully. So what we see in medieval painting, what we see in medieval poetry and so forth, basically metaphors of, of, of heaven. So the metaphors of hell, but the metaphors of heaven are much more difficult to pin down. So that's why we have so many different pictures and poetry and, and in, in, uh, in art. Metaphors, yes. Yes, Martin? Yeah, maybe um, we should look at Please, another some one. Please, more, and for... then we'll jump on to this whole question of who actually gets in. Who touched... gets in? Like, this yeah, is, I want, we want to know who gets fun... into heaven. Yeah. That's my question. So this is another one from the Spinola hours. The problem is with manuscripts that you cannot you know, always show one opening. And this book has several um, really wonderful um, examples of uh, um, candidates for the, for the exhibition. So this one is... Uh, is Offers kind of a double a double page um, uh, view of heaven. Um, it's uh, it has two kind of um, gothic stone frame uh, stone frames that that give the idea that you would look through a window. Um, it's it's kind of it probably has the sense of looking through a church through a wall. Um, behind it, we have the kind of the heavenly com community made out of saints and and blessed. Um, it's gendered, the left or the male and the, and the Right. Martin, why does everyone seem so orderly in heaven? It's orderly. It's always orderly. They're always orderly it's and order. in line. And it's always why is orderly. That? It's always, um, I think and everyone's polite and <laughs> their hands are clasped. Um, why is that? I mean, I, th I think that that probably goes uh, back to kind of Neoplatonic um, ideas of of heaven, of symmetry, of harmony, of uh, hierarchy, and uh, and hell is um, the perversion or the inversion of this right. kind of order of chaos. Um, but what, one thing I like particularly about it, like the center, like it's actually, it's kind of based on a, on a passage from Apocalypse, Adoration of the Mystic Lamb. But it's, it's a, like you cannot, you cannot really see it. It's kind of lost in the gutter. That's what I think is a problem. Like artists have to work around this problem of, uh, of representing something that per definition we heard, is kind of flies outside human perception. And uh, they f have to find kind of visual means how to, how to um, at the same time, depict yeah. their subject matter, but make clear that, you know, you don't really get, you know, that's not really heaven. And I think this one, the artist here uses the gutter as a, as a way to hmm. conceal, like just give you a limited vision of, of what heaven is. But, but it always seems that uh, in, in Western conceptions of heaven, heaven is something which, which, which is embodied. You, you, you were there not just as a spirit, but as a, a physical dimension as well. 
in the Buddhist concept, they do have heavens where, where there is a physical body. Uh, these sound very much like what, what we would know from Greek and Roman mythology in many ways. Um, but there are other levels of heaven where the materiality is present but so subtle that um, uh, you can't really define what that body is any longer. Um, and uh, at certain points, uh, these, are, these are heavens that are achieved only through meditative development. And one can gain access to those heavens by going through, in, in this lifetime, uh, the specific kinds of meditation that is required to achieve uh, access to those levels of existence. But then there's a, there are even higher heavens, which are called the immaterial heavens in Buddhism, where you don't have this physical embodiment anymore. And these are realms that are so subtle uh, the, there, there are four of them. Uh, you can just imagine how this is. The, the, the first level, the lowest level of these immaterial realms is called infinite space, where your existence seems to expand to fill the entire universe. The second and a little bit more rarefied level is called infinity of consciousness, where your mind seems to take in the entire universe. Let me just ask you, when you're talking mm -hmm. about the souls, mm -hmm. those the Judeo-Christian history has, tradition has, we, there's an a value, I guess, in the optics. We, we get to see, because the belief is that the body rises with the soul, um, we get to see bodies and see what it looks like. So how does, how does this work? Is there, what, what would be the optic here? What would, what would a, can you envision it? I mean, you're using words, but could there be, could you paint it? What, would there be a painting of it? What, it sounds uh, so, so... So far as I know, there, there's not. The, the, these is, higher heavens, there's not. Is the that lower intrinsically heavens, because of the fact that it's... It, it's immaterial. Uh, okay. there, there, there's no physical dimension at all. And so the subtlest realms, uh, the, the, the third and third of these four is called the realm of nothing whatsoever. And the fourth is even more subtle than this, it's called the realm that is so subtle you can't define it as either conscious or unconscious. But these again, these are simply levels of existence. Uh, even though the lifetimes of the beings who are in those realms may be eons of time and length, eventually those beings will die and therefore they are not a, uh, a soteriological goal. Thinking of some minimalist paintings from the seventies, though, that might work for that. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. You, go ahead. Uh, yeah, if I can pick up on the materiality here, it's interesting for um, the Judeo-Christian Muslim tradition. I'm going to ask you to define materiality for our audience first. Uh, well, that well, materiality is this. I mean, okay. it's, my body is pretty darn material, okay. and so the question is, when I die, am I going to have this body, or am I going to have some kind of a spirit that's in heaven? without my body. And that's the curious thing in, in the Western traditions is because uh, in most ways of looking at it, I mean, when you die, your spirit is separated from your body at least for a while. But at the end of the world, for Judaism, Christian, and Islam, at the end of the world, you will, be, you will, be, um, you will get your body back again. You will, you will, um, it's, it's a but resurrection it's of it's the body, the resurrection body, of the right? body. It's a perfect body. It's your body, but it's your body in its perfect, most glorified possible way with all of your, you know, with all of your uh, abilities and knowledge and feelings and so forth to the nth degree. I'd like to introduce a little history and reality into all of this conceptual talk because you're mentioning the end of the world. For colonized peoples around the world, the 19th century was the end of the world. And uh, whether we're talking about Africa, whether we're talking about Latin America, North America, which I know best, but when you study revitalization movements, the birth of alternative movements that are attempting to give hope to dispossessed people, they are thinking of heaven as being released from this current mm -hmm. dilemma, this current 
this current holocaust in the case of California Indians between 1848 and 1860, when 50,000 Indians were killed in the Sierra foothills by ordinary citizens on weekend Indian hunts. For them, this was the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And their conception of heaven, their alternative, their resistance movements to these historical, real contexts was in the, in the situation right outside of Sacramento to collectively group in earth lodges and pray that the world outside will be cleared of white people, will be cleared of the hogs that have eaten their acorns, will return the ancestors who've died of disease and depression, and will be recarpeted with wildflowers, which is their idea of heaven. And so they would collectively pray intensely. It's a form of ghost dance. The ghost dance begins here in California in 1870 before moving to the plains. But this is a pattern that is not unique to California, although, and it happened right outside here of Los Angeles earlier uh, by, with a female shaman who, who had this similar sort of movement. So for these uh, peoples in various situations around the world, there have been literally thousands and thousands of movements who, which developed very concrete, very practical cosmologies of what it meant for them to have heaven on earth mm -hmm. and what it was necessary to achieve that, and they worked very hard. Christianity began as one such movement. I don't want to lose sight of what we, we, you, two of you spoke of earlier, which is that question of who gets in, because I know when it comes to colleges, um, gated communities, and um, <laughs> country clubs, the more exclusive it is, the better it's supposed to be. So what I wonder is, is whether we talk about it from an aesthetic tradition or a faith tradition, the idea of, of the fact that not everyone gets in. I'm wondering, one, how that affects how we think about it and, and, and maybe what that comes out of. I don't want to get into a big conversation about free will or determinism here, but I'm just curious about, um, is it... Is it important, and how does it factor into kind of how we, how we view the afterlife, whether well, or not everyone gets to go? Everybody gets in who loves God and, and neighbor, and um, uh, everybody makes mistakes, and in Christian terms, everybody sins, but um, uh, the whole, it's the whole direction of your character. Every, 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 good, every good person does something's wrong. Probably every bad person may do something's right once in a while, but it's the whole... Uh, direction of your character. If you're turned toward God and love, you get in. But it's not like getting into a place again. It's getting sure. it's getting to live with God and and your uh, your fellow uh, your fellow believers. Well, in the Buddhist context, there there are quite specific directions on what it takes to get into these these it's various very clear, heavens. Yes. Yeah, I mean because it's it's all built upon. Um, upon a, uh, an edifice of uh, morality, meditation, and various kinds of wisdom that are developed. And so depending upon uh, the degree to which you've developed those three factors depends w where you would be reborn in your next lifetime if you don't attain the experience of nirvana. But again, because all of these uh, are, are sort of temporary way stations, uh, just because you have done very well in this lifetime, maybe you've, you've done a lot of meditation practice, you've had certain experiences which, which give you entree to these levels of existence so that you, you can be reborn there in your next lifetime, that's still going to be an impermanent experience, ultimately, that you, you will eventually fall from. Is there a certainty of, of which, I mean, if you ask a Southern Baptist, he'll say, brother, I'm saved and I know I'm going to heaven, but is there a certainty as a Buddhist that someone could know which of those heavens you've just described, where, they'll, where they will, we can't even talk chronologically, I realize, but where, where they will 
likely in be some a, cases, some, yes. yes. So I mean, you could speak with certainty about that. Yeah, in some okay. cases, yes, because you uh, you can actually experience uh, the, the state, uh, the, the heavenly state, mm -hmm. uh, through your meditation practice in this okay. lifetime, and thus okay. know where you're going to end up in your next. Um, well, and, and, and there are actually people who apparently have been to the afterlife and are, have come back to report on it to us. And I, I know if you walk into a bookstore today, if you can still find one, um, there's, sort of a whole, there's sort of a whole genre of these heaven travelogues. I don't know if you've seen them. I just saw a few at the airport, um, one by a little four-year-old boy, a couple others. People who have um, say that they've died and gone to heaven and been given a tour, and then they come back to speak about it, or maybe not to speak about it, but to just say that their lives are changed. And... And I was fascinated in seeing the exhibit that you created, Martin, to realize that this I mean, went back to this night, Tondal and others. So I'm wondering, um, what was the role it played then? And did people pay attention to this night who, who said, I've been there and come back and let me tell you about it? Yeah. Um, I mean, in fact, it goes back like, to the earliest literature that we have, like Epic of uh, Gilgamesh, for instance. Like, yeah. This is like, um, um, let's see. Um, oh, yeah, there we go. Um, so yeah, that's that's one. Um, that's the visions of Tondo. It's it's also on on display. This is a different. Uh, this is a different opening. It's about about Knight Tondo who is leading a rather um, you know um, not so good life, and um, his guardian angel is uh, is uh, taking him on a tour, show him like what's a, what would await him if he continues the life he's leading, and also what rewards would await him in heaven. Um, and uh, also that kind of maybe connects to the point we were talking before about um, there's like a more fine grain about uh, uh, who is like there's not only the damned and the blessed but there this uh, visions uh, visions of Tana kind of differentiates between the bad the uh, the very bad the bad the um, the good but not the very good and the very good so there's like and he's like taking through all, um, he's taking through all those different places and um, here in this one he arrives. Uh, the very inner sanctum of heaven. Um, he has visited all the other places, has, has seen the joys, the, the, the souls um, kind of experience there. And then he comes to a wall, and this is kind of, uh, this is it. Like, mm. it's, it's a beautiful wall. He describes it so beautiful. He just wants to stay there and look at it for the rest of his life. Um, it's, he describes it made out of precious stones and metals. Um, but actually, um, the, you know, the core of heaven is inside the wall. So it's, it's another way of dealing with the problem of uh, rep representation that you actually, um, you know, the, the beauty of heaven is being, is being um, com communicated through a wall that actually blocks the heaven off. Hmm. Like the, uh, Professor, you, as, as, a, as a Dante scholar, I mean, did any, he, he sort of was the ultimate in presenting this. Did anyone do it better than Dante in terms of giving us these very specific tours of of the afterlife? I don't think anybody, certainly in, in, in verbal terms, did it any better than Dante, no. Uh, because, um, well, as we all know, he first he goes down to hell, which is the most uh, uh, visible and the most uh, representational. But uh, then he goes up through purgatory, and then he, then he begins in his journey up, up into heaven, and he goes through these different circles, and um, each, in each circle, he's given a little bit more understanding and information, but he has to wait till he gets to the outermost skin of the cosmos, what's called the prima mobile, the, the sphere that moves all the other spheres inside of it. And then, you know, the, curious, the, the wonderful thing about that is when he's standing on the prima mobile, 
he, he, look, he can look down one side and he sees all the way down to the earth. And then he turns the other way. He sees all the way down, not up again, all the way down into heaven. So God is at the very center and he has to move, mm. has to move mm. down like through. Well, he uses the, um, uses the uh, uh, image of an, of an amphitheater, of the theater. He has to move down and God is right there at the, at the center of everything. Mm. Peter, are there other similar examples in Native American traditions of folks going to the next life or the afterlife or another life and then coming back and, and sharing it? Well, it's always happening because for the people, as I repeat, uh, that I'm looking at the Akama people who have their ancestors becoming kachinas and becoming clouds, they want them to come all the time because the ancestors are going to bring rain. These are very basic needs that we're talking about. Uh, and also, if I'm thinking about California Indians, California Indians, if you're coming down from the Sierras into the foothills, you come down into the Sacramento River Valley, you're there in spring, pretty hard to think of something more like heaven. Right. Uh, and I think that that's how they felt as well. I think they felt they were in heaven. Hmm. Now, I don't even know how to phrase that to you, but let's see, to be, okay. So does what happens, now this is bad, but does what happens in Nirvana stay in Nirvana? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've never been asked the question quite I know, that way before, really Jody. Flipped, no. but I just thought I'm going to have a short question because I know it's a long answer. <laughs> well, the experience would be, um, and again, this is a, a metaphor the Buddha uses. Again, mm -hmm. metaphors mm -hmm. is, I think, where we end yes. up when we're talking about levels of uh, states like this. Uh, the, the metaphor is that uh, whatever words you use to describe nirvana are inevitably going to be a misrepresentation. Yeah. And so when he talks about nirvana, uh, the Buddha usually describes it in negative terms. He says, there is this state in which mm -hmm. there is none of the above, essentially. And uh, that okay. conveys a sense of what it is, yeah. what it's going to be. But essentially, mm -hmm. once, once you've achieved that state, you're, you're, you know uh, all of the, the rules no longer apply. The uh, process and cycle of birth and death does, does not apply anymore. Uh, the mm -hmm. differentiation between uh, materiality and immateriality does not apply anymore. So all the concepts we can use to describe what nirvana would be, or what, is nirvana permanent, is it impermanent, all these concepts no longer apply. So I'd leave it to you to figure out what that would, might be, actually. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Martin, I don't know if you have any images on this, but in, in the exhibit and in, and in your uh, writings along with them, the idea that these, these prayer books, part of the intention was to help motivate people to be prepared for when they were on their deathbed and these grand battles would be going on between the forces of good and evil fighting over their soul. I wonder if you could, if you have images or if you could talk to us a little bit about, about how that fit into life for your, your average person. Here? No, in medieval times. <laughs> no, you're a medievalist. I'm, I don't expect you to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, um, um, for instance, uh, mm, this year, which shows a, it's a prayer book um, produced for Denise Ponchet, and it's presumably her who is uh, standing in front of, uh, of death. Um, it's actually, this time, we actually get the, the figure of death um, being developed, or it like first appears in art as a, as, you know, as a skeleton with uh, scythe. Is it it's called scythe, scythe. right? Scythe. 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 Um, and uh, right next to her, um, there lies three of her companions or, um, struck, struck dead. Um, and uh, she, 
like presumably she's she's been leading a, a very uh, you know uh, a good life, a good Christian, good Christian life. So she has nothing to fear. Um, she has nothing to fear from death because when she dies, she's prepared. She knows she will go into heaven. So the the biggest fear in in for medieval people was uh, to die a sudden death. Like that's maybe something a lot of people yeah. today hope for. Like you know just you know just get whatever hit by a car and you know it's over. But uh, <laughs> Uh, for a medieval person, it would be the worst thing because you wouldn't be able to actually, um, you know, mentally and spiritually prepare for that, for this specific moment, just a decisive moment. And this is also where the term dying well, kind of the idea to die well comes from. Um, I want to pick up on that a little bit. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, that's very important because um, in Christian tradition, um, even if you're a sinner, if you repent, at a certain point in your life, even if it's just at the moment of death, if you repent and say, I, I, I really, I've done wrong and I really love God and I, I, I want to be with God, even if it's the last moment, uh, that person uh, uh, can, can come into heaven. And Dante has one of his uh, characters in, in uh, Purgatory, I, anyway, one of his characters is shedding a tear of repentance at the moment of his death and Dante says that one tear is enough to get mm. you in paradise because you're sorry when I was when I was looking at these books these sort of books to prepare the medieval person for that moment of death it made me wonder if there was any whether there were any parallels or if it's a fair question I mean it was very popular in this country many years ago the Tibetan book of the dead maybe it was misappropriated but the idea that this was a, a preparation for um, what is to come? Is there anything there? Do you see, when you when you look at when you saw this art here tonight, did it was there any any parallels, or is it completely different? Well, the Buddhists don't don't, don't have have any illustrated manuals the way that you seem to have in Christianity, but uh, they do have very elaborate visualization exercises that one could go through, uh, not only at the moment of death, but in the, in the process of dying. This process in the Buddhist uh, conception uh, takes upwards of 49 days, uh, where you, you know, your, your physical body dies, but there's a very gradual process of, of, of essentially connecting you to the next rebirth then. And so during this 49-day process, it is possible to kind of guide the person in, in, in different directions, hopefully to the direction of nirvana itself, but if not that, at least to better quality rebirths, where there will be less suffering available, and perhaps even into one of these heavens as well. And so the, uh, a text like the Tibetan Book of the, of the Dead does give guidance on, on how one can, can help the, the being in transition uh, move to a better quality rebirth. So there are similar interesting parallels there, I think, with that. We don't have a lot of time left, so I'm wondering, I want to get back to your point in the, in, in the part of the exhibit title, which I think is fascinating, which is Dying Well. And it, it strikes me that at least here in the West, we're much more interested in living well. And the idea of thinking about death or having much to do with death is really something we go out of our way to avoid unless you're a, a cop or a doctor or a, or a soldier. The idea of actually seeing someone dying is probably something that um, we don't experience the way someone would in a medieval period of time. And we spend a lot more time and energy thinking about eating our quinoa and getting our plastic surgery and exercising to live well. And I just would love to hear if each of you had some thoughts on... I guess, is this a luxury we have because of where we live? If, if, uh, is it something where when you, when you look at folks who live in parts of the world who don't have these luxuries, they, they possibly think more about the afterlife because it is a reward. It's, um, whether it's the African-American 
who were enslaved and sung hymns about the, the, the world to come, or whether it's a suicide bomber who's living in, in, in somewhere in the world where he has no education, no nothing, and he's, he's, he's offered great promises, whether it's um, um, an oppressed Native American. I'm just, I'd love to hear all of uh, your thoughts on this, of, of, of the idea of dying well and situated today where we here sit fat and happy in the beautiful Getty Museum and we are all clearly living very well. Well, one of the things as this conversation has been developing that I realize and feeling the odd person out in that I'm representing folks, I'm talking about folks, I'm not representing, but I'm talking about folks whose primary concern comes from not the individualistic personal perspective that I hear everybody else talking about, but from a collective communal perspective. Mm -hmm. And so it's the health of the community that seems to be yeah. so important in Pueblo Indian society. And where that community is endangered, uh, everybody feels it as if they're all part of a collective nervous system. And uh, I think the fear for an individual, if we want to revert to the Western individualistic perspective, would be banishment from this collective, integrated nervous system. The concern to be, is to be part of that working nervous system and to engage with the cosmos so that there's a form of participatory maintenance. That is what human beings do in ritual action, uh, in prayers, in a sober movement, tentative sometimes through uncertain circumstances, is to make sure that they are engaging the cosmological forces so that rain will happen, so that disease will stay away, so that good luck will happen. Of course, it doesn't happen that way. Witches take place, sorcery takes place, inhumanities of various sorts take place, but so much energy is kept, uh, is being devoted to community coherence. And I suppose the notion of complete community annihilation, which is what people faced and indeed endured in many cases in California, is what pushes that hope for an alternative heaven that I was describing before. But um, I'm not sure, I mean, there in, in these communities when life is going good, life is going good. And be happy for it and be thankful and recognize it and take it in. I think that's the notion that I get from the Pueblo folks I'm hmm. learning about. The gratitude. Yeah. Gratitude. Yes. And, the, and, and proper action with cornmeal and corn pollen and treating dead animals, right, so that they will return for their rebirth and come back and want to give themselves to you as a hunter, whereas if you don't do that, they won't, and the community of animals in your community will not somehow be integrated. I don't want to present a, a, you know, an ethno-pious, beautiful, harmonious picture here because human beings are human beings, but the goal is what I'm referring to. Yeah, I, I'm very glad you raised the question of community because we have been talking in these individualistic terms, and I think they're very typical of Christianity uh, probably since the uh, 1500s or 1600s. But if we look back over the whole history of Western religions, we look back at, at ancient uh, Israelite religion, and it's mainly community. It's the people of Israel that are going to come to God, or if they fall away, they're not going to come to God, but it's the whole community. And um, uh, the prophets and the Psalms are always talking about that. Uh, it's, it's the people of Israel who God wishes to save. Now in Christianity, again, up until uh, uh, recent, <laughs> recent 500 years in, in the West, um, <laughs> it's recent to me, uh, <laughs> Insert historian uh, joke. <laughs> <laughs> 
The emphasis is on the communion of saints. Also in Islam is the ummah, the ummah, the community of of Muslim believers. Uh, So individuals can stray from those communities, certainly, but the emphasis, again, is on the unification of the community uh, with, with, with God. And I think it is indicative of our modern society that we tend to think of ourselves as, um, as individuals divorced from the rest of, of people. And also, as you say, in modern times, we kind of think of death as being something far distant. Now, we all know that everybody in this room is going to die, but somehow we think, well, that, you know, that's off in the future. But, you know, the moment you die is now. You know, you're not going to be, when you're dying, you're not going to say, oh, I'm really sitting in this auditorium listening to me. No, the moment you die is going to be now. So I think we all, we all if we think about it, we're all faced with a death in a way that, uh, in a way that, that we probably should be. And uh, all this business of um, having fun on earth is a way of, of, of avoiding it. To live a good, to give, to live a good life in, uh, in, these Western religious, Western religions, you know, is is not to not to quote have fun, you know. No, no, no. But, I don't want to end to, on that. That we yeah. can't have fun. We can't. No, no. We're not going to end there because I'm getting no, in time. So we're no, not going to no. end on that idea. No, no. We can have we can have fun, Jody. We can have fun, but that's not the point of living of a good life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm teasing. I allow fun sometimes. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I think our time our time up here of, of having a solicitic conversation has ended. Um, so we look forward to taking your questions. I saw a Pew poll yesterday that uh, apparently 81% of Americans still believe in the existence of heaven where people live forever, and only 63% believe in a hell where people are punished forever. I'm not good at math, but that means there's 18% who I'm not sure where, I guess maybe that's purgatory, I don't know, but so we're looking forward to your questions about heaven, hell, and dying well. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I have a question about the Middle Ages. So one of the pivotal events was the plague. And I'm wondering how this, this disease and co- constant death sort of affected people's impression of heaven and hell. Plagues, but particularly the Black Death, which was such a, a terrible event sweeping through all of Europe and, and killing so many people. You have, in the, you have following that time, which is the mid-14th century, you have following that time, you have more... Um, more terrifying um, uh, representations of death, more and more immediate representations of death. Uh, you, have, uh, you have some very curious, uh, you can tell more about it, but very curious art forms where uh, you, have, you have the tomb of the person and uh, the, 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 you see the person in life and then you see the person in, in its decayed skeletal shape. So there, there is certainly in times of plague and, and, uh, and miseries of all kinds, there is a, a more, uh, a more uh, close attention to death and its representations, yes. Yeah, I think that's also the, the um, last image uh, I showed Denise Ponchet with this kind of uh, uh, you know, um, skeleton. Um, uh, this, this is something that is often related to, to the plague, to the experience of the plague, which is not only in the mid-14th century, but kind of continues from there on, um, uh, reoccurring um, every now and then. And this kind of, you know, this kind of um, overflow of death is, certainly leaves its impression in, in visual representation, and also not only in the representation, but also in the thinking in general about death. And, and death as a person then emerges, and the morbid 
kind of comes uh, comes into play, and uh, death is given a, a voice, and and that it, um, you know, it's not only God, it's not only uh, Satan, but it's it's also death itself. Um, you know, seems to take a bigger role from there on. According to these traditions, what do they say about the uh, uh, age of the body in which that soul is going to integrate? Is it going to be when the person is a child? Is it going to be when it is middle age, if it lives that long, or old age? Do they ever reference as to when, at what age, uh, the body and the soul are going to reintegrate? The answer is very, uh, they're not always the same answer, but the general idea is that uh, you are going to be in the most perfect form you can possibly be. We all have, everybody has limitations, so you can't go beyond them, but, but your, your potential, your potential is completely realized. So what does that mean uh, for the age of your body when you are uh, resurrected? It means it's going to be in the most perfect, the most realized state. Now, when would that be? Uh, that possibly depends on the person, but the, the general point of view, and this is, this is more theological, not, not theological, but leg legendary, well, you're supposed to be about 30 or 33 because number one, that's the age at which Christ was when he died, but also number two, probably for a lot of us, um, that's an age where we feel kind of the most <laughs> vigorous and the most confident. In the, in the Last Judgment, when you uh, have a resurrection, often represented the re resurrection of the bodies, you, there's some fascinating details where, um, where people, you know, it was a big, a big problem, like how, how, do, uh, how do the bodies get resurrected? What happens to a body that has been burned? What happens, for instance, to a body that has been eaten by an animal? And you really find um, this kind of this animals um, regurgitating um, Parts of bodies, so they can be re reassembled um, for the resurrection. <laughs> oh, so the animals are in heaven when they're doing. Where are the animals that are doing the regurgitating? No, they are doing the regurgitating. Um, in this world or the next one? In, at the, at the, at the uh, day of judgment. At the, at day of judgment. And then okay. they're being kind of put back together. Those so unfortunates. So practical. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And then they're in the perfect state, except for martyrs. Like there, there's cars. Um, um, for instance, those uh, you know, those who have received their their kind of uh, uh, injuries for for the love of God, they 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 will still have their scars visible, as you know. In the Christian Bible, there's reference to uh, those who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven and those who are least in the kingdom of heaven, and I'm wondering if that refers to layers of heaven. Um, the way that Christian believers um, view heaven, or is it in reference to something else? And also, does it refer to something in the Old Testament? There are two things. One, everybody in heaven is completely uh, at their maximum potential. And so everybody is completely happy, completely fulfilled, nothing, no worries, nothing. You're, you're, just, you're just as perfect as you can be. However, also, people have different potentialities. And so some people have greater potentialities than others, and particularly in regard to understanding God or envisioning God. And so those people are, in fact, 
Well, they would say higher in the kingdom of heaven, so I have to use that, that word, or closer to God or with a clearer vision or understanding of God than those, um, those who, who, who don't have those potentialities. Yeah, the idea of, um, of um, hierarchies does, uh, does go all the way back to the beginning of Christianity and even to, um, even to at least later uh, Israelite religion. Yeah. Does it tie in at all to the Beatitudes and the idea that those who are lacking in some, the meek here will inherit that idea that whatever we didn't have in this life, we will have in the next, whatever our... Uh, yes, and that, that relates to God's, God's justice, because after all, uh, we all know all too well that uh, some people are very badly off in, in this world, and uh, they will certainly in the, other, in the other world, or whatever we want to call it, the other state, uh, they will be uh, fully rewarded. All of their lack and 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 you know, lack of happiness on earth will be completely uh, uh, restored to them or given to them. Question all the way at the top, Professor. You addressed the question about how, in the Christian faith, someone goes to heaven versus hell. And essentially, what I gathered from your answer is you said that a person goes to heaven versus hell based upon their good or bad character. And secondly, when you answered the question, you focused on uh, an individual's willingness to love God and love other people. Now, what I found missing from your answer was the role of Jesus Christ in the Christian faith. Clearly, the Bible says in Acts 4, there's no under name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. Jesus says in John chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I'm wondering if you could comment on the role of an individual's faith, trust, belief, following Jesus Christ in terms of determining whether they go to heaven and hell in the Christian faith according to the New Testament. The whole question of faith and works and grace and so forth enters into this. Um, some people do more good works than others, but what is the cause of the good works that they're doing? The cause of the good works is not their own personal virtue, which is kind of a Greek or Roman or whatever. It's not their own personal virtue. It's your openness to what the Christians call grace. It's the openness to, uh, to the love of Christ uh, that is given to you, given to you by God. And so your good deeds proceed from your connection with Christ and, 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 and with God. So the ultimate cause of good deeds is always God, and it's our response to that that determines our character. It's like, uh, I, I used to use the, it's not a very good analogy, but it's like a radio is always plugged in, the, the grace is always there, uh, and, but you have to turn the radio on to get to the right station. But the grace, the grace is the main vehicle. It brings forth the good works, and the good works, uh, so, so again, yeah, it's, it's not the good works per se, but the good works um, uh, encouraged by grace uh, and following Christ, yeah. Martin, do you want to... Um, maybe add some... I'm not going to talk about obviously the most obvious things like the crucifixion of Christ and the passion of Christ, which are the most popular images in, in medieval art. But um, one thing is this uh, very popular... Um, uh, tradition of uh, uh, portraying uh, Christ descending into limbo or into 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 yeah. hell to to release the righteous because Christ is here is here the person who actually uh, through his death kind of opens heaven up for Christians before that nobody could go um, to heaven at least that's what Christians believe 
Um, so all the um, righteous uh, await basically in a pre-chamber of, of hell um, to be then led by Christ. That like he breaks down the door of, of, of hell and, um, and kind of saves those people and leads them into heaven. So he's the one who opens up, um, he's the one who opens up heaven. Um, yes, these are, these are the prophets of the Old Testament, for example, who have to wait for Christ in order to enter the kingdom <coughs> of heaven, but Christ opens the door to them. And then that gets expanded to a good uh, right to, to people who try to follow uh, righteousness uh, on, in other areas, uh, people in other religions and so forth. The uh, latitude allowed varies depending on, on the thinker. But Christ does go down. Yeah, you need Christ to go down and to bring up all of the prophets and uh, and uh, righteous people from the Old Testament. My name is Tim Jaddick. Uh, I'm 33, by the way. <laughs> Just thought I'd mention that. Um, my question is regards to something that was actually mentioned earlier, uh, which seems to be a newer trend, the idea of heaven coming to earth. And of course, uh, the Judeo-Christian, or of course, Christian tradition, rather, is Jesus Christ bringing the kingdom of God. So my question is, especially in the world of art, um, why is that a new, was that absent uh, for some time, the whole idea of heaven coming to earth and a, a new creation, and if so, why? I think that's, it's interesting to talk about uh, paradise. Like, there's paradise, there's celestial paradise, there's ter ter terrestrial paradise, and they're often getting confounded. Um, but it's uh, the, the terrestrial paradise, which is basically the Garden of Eden, uh, which is um, at some point going to be reopened um, um, for Christians to get back into. It's something to be a, a place that is on earth. It's a place that we find on um, uh, medieval world maps, always um, on the very top of the east. It's, a, it's not really accessible. Um, it's, it's kind of either separated through, a, through an ocean or through some other kind of obstruction. Um, but it's, for instance, also where the four major rivers um, um, spring forth, um, Euphrates, Tigris, uh, Nile, and Ganges, um, if I'm right. Um, so there is um, certainly this idea that the, there is a paradise on Earth, and we're some point going to return to. Um, that's the paradise Adam and Eve have been uh, expelled from. Um, and there's also the idea of the heavenly Jerusalem um, coming you know, um, coming down to earth, um, but that's probably something, I don't know, yeah, I, I talk think, about uh, more, more about that. Yeah, exactly, there are several things there. I mean, one, first of all, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is among you, or the kingdom of heaven is in your hands, or the various translations of it, but the idea being that, you know, heaven, heaven begins here, heaven begins here with the love of God, and uh, when you go on, you're just, you're following that same path that you've followed here. And then also, uh, as was just mentioned, um, uh, you know, if, if there's any location of heaven at all, if it, if it ever, if it, there is the tradition that the, uh, it's in the book of Revelation, I, you know, I saw the heavenly Jerusalem come down, come down to earth. And uh, what does that mean? Does that mean the transformation of the whole the whole planet? Does it mean the transformation of humanity? Does it mean the transformation of the entire cosmos? Those are all, those are all various ideas. Uh, I was just wondering um, about Hinduism and what Hinduism says about heaven and hell and if it believes in it. Um, and my friend just poked me and said, what about the animal kingdom? Uh, 
what happens to the animals. We did not promise that this would be an exhaustive group tonight. There are several, <laughs> there are several faith traditions that are not represented, and it is, perhaps it is a sin of, is it a sin of commission or omission? I don't know, but would any of you like to... Um, You'll pay for it. <laughs> I can address it very, very briefly because actually the, uh, the uh, Buddhist uh, conception of the various levels of heavens is very close to what you find in Hinduism as yeah. well. They both come out of a common religious tradition in India. So what I was describing in the case of Buddhism will apply in many cases also to the, to the tradition of Hinduism. So. And as for, um, as for the uh, ancient Israelite view of heaven and hell, it, it evolves over time. Uh, in, in, the, in the earliest uh, texts we have people who die, uh, either they just vanish or they go to a place called Sheol, which is a place of shadows. It's neither bad nor good. It's a place similar to the Greek Hades. You just, your, your shadows floating around. Uh, but then as, as time goes on, when you get uh, t toward, the, toward the beginning of the Christian era, several centuries before the Christian era, uh, you get the idea of a separation and uh, the um, uh, people who are not faithful to the Lord uh, go to a place called Gehenna, which is from which Christian hell develops because it's under the world and it's full of pain and torment, uh, whereas other people are taken up to the Lord. So it depends on the period of Israelite religion that you're talking about. And Gehenna is believed to be a, a, a valley. Yes, it's the Valley of Gehenna, which is right outside the walls of Jerusalem. And that was something that I was thinking of when looking at the Spinola Hours, where actually hell is, in this case, a, a valley, which is rather unusual. Um, so, yeah. yeah, Valley of Death. I remember the first time, many years ago, when I was a tourist in Rome, it's the first time I saw a picture, a depiction of hell. And I was horrified like hell, you know? It was very, very scary, and I kind of wonder, why, why do they do that? And then I start to try to think like Machiavelli things, you know? How you control people and how this is, I felt, being used to scare people in such a way that they can keep them under control. So here you use art, and here we talk about, and I consider myself a spiritual person, and I understand all the thought about high spiritual level and everything else. But when you come to some practical level, and if you see the social justice in the world today, pretty much is driven by religions fighting each other, who is more supreme. And uh, I want you to discuss this depiction of hell <coughs> and the way it's being used as a control mechanism. Those images kind of function or at least discussed very often as functioning as agent of terrorism and to control people and to, but but especially if we look at at, at those um, objects in the show, the, the Spinola hours, they are. You know, people pay a lot of money to get those books. They commission them. They are getting um, painted in fabulous colors and 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 uh, elaboration, and I think it's as much like I imagine those views getting as much. Um, terror as pleasure out of looking at those. There's this particular way, um, you know, we ourselves today can watch a horror movie. We are kind of like, terrifying ourselves, but we're also getting a certain <coughs> pleasure of viewing um, those. So I, I don't, that's certainly an important point that images kind of can control um, people, but they, I think we should not reduce them to kind of this aspect. There's much more to them um, than only yeah. being.
It's an excellent way to end yeah, our discussion. I, 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 I'm very glad you brought that up because there's the social dimension here, which we haven't talked much about in, in, in this session. Um, it's a mistake to imagine that heaven and hell were invented in order to control people because the ideas go way, way back and we don't have any images of heaven and hell in the for example, in early, well, in, in Judaism or in early Christianity, there, there, are, there aren't any. But um, it certainly becomes true uh, later on that both artists and, and, and preachers you began with, was it Whitefield you began? Uh, Jonathan no. Edwards. Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards, that's right. It is obvious that later on preachers and artists uh, did see uh, the terrors of hell as a way of, of convincing people not, not to do bad things. So it did function later as a, as a degree of social control, but I agree completely. We shouldn't reduce it to that. It's much more than that, but it does, it does have that function too. Yeah. And in, in Buddhism as well, there, there are very elaborate uh, uh, depictions of the, of the various kinds of sufferings that occur in hell as a way of encouraging the person to engage in wholesome actions so you won't end up there. But one of the most interesting things I ever saw was I was at a place in, uh, in China called the Dazu Caves, a stone-cut cave, and they had a, a, this, this extremely elaborate diorama of hell, all the various kinds of hells, the knife hells, the cold hells, on down the line. But as you go, go through this diorama, at the very end, the very last diorama, was a man sitting down, having a cup of tea, refreshing himself, now that he had finished all of his torments in hell, had his cup of tea, ready to go on to his next rebirth. So. Oh. <laughs> well, with that, let's have some tea and yes. wine, and uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you.